starting a new series today called Cribs. And uh, I want you to think of, how many of you ever saw this, the series on TV, Cribs? Okay, four of you understand, but we're going to take a different meaning of Cribs. Christmas is all about the God of the universe walking down the staircase of heaven, taking his one and only son and placing her into the womb of a peasant girl named Mary. And eventually Mary gave birth, and what she did was she placed Jesus in a, in a manger, in a feeding trough. That was his very first crib. But we're not going to stay there because Jesus eventually grew up, left the crib, and died on a cross for our sins. And eventually he rose from the dead, and now he sits in heaven. But, but the cribs thing is, think about this. The Bible says that if you are, are a follower of Christ, then, then this body that you live in, this crib that you walk around in, becomes the dwelling place of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, of, of God. So the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside this crib, and I walk around, and, and I'm actually a representative of Jesus Christ. And only when I give this crib to Jesus and allow His Spirit to be born inside of me can I, can I fully understand what Christmas is all about. And then can I fully understand what life is all about. When you, when you come face to face with Jesus' crib, you realize that this body is temporary. And it was not created for me to be in charge. I'm not on the throne of my life. God custom designed every one of us to have Jesus Christ sit on the throne of our lives. So we have to willingly say to Him, I give you my life, I invite you into my life, and then He's born in us, and we become these walking around representatives of Jesus Christ. Now, um, cribs means crucial the crucial relationship initiated by the Savior. That's creative. It's not mine. I stole it. But I liked it, so that's what we're going with. The real meaning of Christmas is this crucial relationship that determines where you spend eternity was initiated by God Himself. He looked down. He saw that we were sinful. We could not get to heaven. We were not good enough to get into heaven. Heaven's a perfect place. God's perfect. He can't let imperfection come into His heaven. So none of us are good enough to get into heaven. All of our good deeds, the Bible says, are filthy rags. And so God looks down, He saw that, and He realized we couldn't um, get across this gulf to heaven. And so what He did was He sent Jesus to bridge the gap. And only through Jesus do you get back to Him. And we're confronted by cribs everywhere. Santa this time of year, but also cribs this time of year. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at some crib confrontation from 2,000 years ago. And we're going to examine over these next several weeks... Um, today, two Sundays, and then Christmas Eve. We've got a Christmas Eve service at 6 p.m., December 24th, right here. Um, we're going to be looking at how people confronted the crib 2,000 years ago, and we're going to see that their reactions are very similar to our reactions today. So what we're going to do is we're going to head to Matthew chapter 2, and we're just going to read through today one of the Christmas stories that you hear read quite a bit. We read this one every Christmas, um, and Luke chapter 2, we'll get to that one next week. But I got to I got to give you just a little bit of background. In Luke chapter two, uh, what's happening is there are some astronomers somewhere in the far east, and they're checking out the sky, and they realize that the meaning of life they've never discovered it. They're trying to to figure out what's missing in their lives. They're checking out the sky, and they see a one of a kind, once in a um, a universe type of star, and they realize that something's going on. So they pack up all of their belongings and they go on this trip. Now these guys were rich, and by the way. Um, they weren't kings. We three kings of Orient are, uh, they weren't kings. They were wise men. The, the literal term in the Bible means magi, which means wise men or stargazers. They were astronomers. 
And, and let me do a little more raining on your nativity scene parade. Everybody thinks there were three of them because there were three different gifts that were given to Jesus. There were more than three of them. We don't know exactly how many, but four, five, six, seven. It wasn't just three. They weren't kings. They were wise men. And they were wealthy wise men. The way we know that is no one who was poor could have financed a trip of several months from the Far East, probably by camel, probably with designer luggage, because back in those days, the way you showed everybody that you were wealthy was by the clothes you wear and by your bling bling. So we talked about this several weeks ago that, that um, the Bible says if, if Mr. Goldfinger, that's the literal term for a dude who's rich and has, has jewelry all over his hands, Mr. Bling Bling, Mr. Goldfinger comes walking in, we're not supposed to pay special attention to him and ignore poor people. But these, you get the idea what was going on here. The wise men were rich and so they go to Jerusalem. They've never been to Jerusalem before. And uh, when they hit the town, you can just imagine, these were tourists. Everybody knew they were tourists. They looked different. They dressed great. The bling bling is shining for everyone to see. Not only are they tourists, they're the best kind of tourists. Rich tourists. And so everybody notices in J-Town, what in the world? These guys are here. They're wise guys. They're rich. What's going on? What are they doing here? So we see the plot, okay? You understand what's going on. Rich dudes in town, good tourists. Everybody wants their business. What are they doing here now? Matthew chapter 2. Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem. All right, now, whenever you go to a new town, what do you do? Do you just wander around till you run into things? When, when I go to a new town, I'm, I'm all into Google Maps. I don't have a GPS. I'll have a GPS someday. But I'm all into Google Maps, and I have at least two different um, views of whatever town I'm going to. I want the, the view that's big enough that I can see, you know, the major... If there's a loop, I want to know where the loop is, and I want to know which direction, north, south, you know, that I'm heading on these major roads. I look at that, but I also want to know, because we go up in the Dallas area, and I'm familiar with Dallas, but I don't know all the towns around it. So when we go to gymnastics meets, I want to know the exact exit that I'm supposed to get off on. So I'll have the view that shows me the exit. And then I want to know the exact uh, block where we are going to turn. And so I have the view that shows me 4200 whatever street, and I want to see that. So these guys come into town, and they're checking things out. And the first ever Christmas miracle, actually it's not the first ever, but it's a huge Christmas miracle, is about to happen right here. I want you to see it. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? Now, that's a miracle in itself, right, ladies? A man asking for directions. But but Christmas miracle of biblical proportions is a whole group of wise men asking for... That's, that's miracle, right? Okay. I tried. I tried. That's huge. They ask for directions, and then they t- tell you why they're in town. We have seen his star as it arose, and we have come to worship him. Now, this next, this next verse, you got to key in on. Herod was deeply disturbed by their question, as was all of Jerusalem. The plot thickens. If, if this was, you know, one of those movies that you see on TV or, you know, dun, 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 the, the plot thickens right here. Because why would Herod be worried about some baby born in a little town? Bethlehem was little bitty compared to Jerusalem. Bethlehem had no power, no status. Why would he be so worried about a baby born there? These designer-toting wise men are in town asking, where's the new king? And King Herod hears this. Now, the Bible says he was what? Deeply disturbed. If I were writing this, I would say, teeth clenched, blood pumping, wall punching, freaked out. See, our Bible doesn't do quite that translation, but he was messed up over this baby being born. And you've you got to ask why. It seems kind of strange that a baby could jack up a king. 
So let's figure out what's going on. King Herod was, uh, was born into a political family. In fact, his father was a king. King Herod grew up and the, the key word in his family as he grew up was power. You, you get power at all costs. King Herod also, when he was a child, saw his father poisoned by a pu- bunch of people who wanted his throne. So Herod becomes king when he's 25 years old. First thing Herod does, because he's been raised on power and get power and control, he throws this big party. And, and Herod, if you study anything about his life, everything Herod did was big. It was huge. And so he throws this party and he invites everyone who had anything to do with his father's assassination. And, and do you know what he did to him? Killed them all at the party. That's That kind of dampens the spirit a bit, doesn't it? I, I want to go to a murder party. You want to go to a murder party? No. He kills them all, and he was sending a message. Don't ever jack with my throne. I'm the king. No one else is the king. And when you throw a killer party like that, <laughs> word gets around that, that King Herod takes his throne very, very seriously. So these rich guys, they come in and, you know, they, they, they see this and, and they start asking about the king and it messes Herod up. So he was nuts. He was really insecure about his throne. One time he, he thought that one of his sons wanted his throne and he was getting a little too frisky. So he had him drowned in the family pool. One time he, he started to distrust one of his wives. He had 11 wives and 43 children. He, he distrusted one of his 11 wives. And so he told an assistant, I'm going on this trip. If something happens to me and I die when I'm on this trip, kill her while I'm gone. So the assistant tells the wife and, you know, Herod comes back and she's understandably kind of distant, kind of cool to him. So he has her executed anyway, because you don't be cool to me. I don't care what I've done. Two other sons, he decides that they want his throne. So he has this big... um uh, trial and he lets them come in and and a historian actually recorded the speeches of these guys his sons uh, swearing on their lives that that there is no plot to steal his throne and and they had nothing to do with this and he has them killed anyway one time he had a dispute with the the highest jewish religious leaders in the city you know how he dealt with them killed them shortly before his death king herod realizes that no one likes me Imagine that. True story. Realizes no one likes me. And so he says, no one's going to cry. No one's going to be sad when I die. So he throws a party. You don't want to be on that list. Gets specifically invites the children of the most powerful and important people in Jerusalem. Gathers them into the Hippodrome. Locks the doors. And he leaves this instruction. When I die... Kill them all. And when he was asked why, his quote was, so that I will be sure that there will be weeping and mourning at my death. That's the kind of guy we're talking about. He's whacked. So does it make sense when someone comes up and starts saying, hey, we hear there's a new king in town. Can you understand why everybody gets jacked up? These naive wise men come walking into town. Hey, where's the new king? Shut up! Don't say new king, he'll hear you! Then we're all in trouble. So when your mentally disturbed king has something to be disturbed about, that means you or your children could die. You see why the whole city would be disturbed, right? Make sense? All right, let's move on. Now, if you're Herod, what do you do do about that? Well, you kill someone, but but Herod wasn't just going to kill everybody, so he had to figure out whom to kill. Next part, verse 4. 
He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of the religious law. Where did the prophets say the Messiah would be born? He asked them. In Bethlehem, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. O Bethlehem of Judah, you are not just a lowly village in Judah, for a ruler will come out, come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Now, anybody who knew anything about the Jewish nation, about the Israel nation, Israelite nation, knew that the Messiah, the one that they're actually still looking for, if, if they're, um, if they're, if they haven't gotten saved, hadn't given their life to Christ, they're still looking for the Messiah. They knew he was going to be born in Bethlehem. All these guys did was they quoted two of the Old Testament scriptures, which most good Jews had memorized most of the Old Testament. They, they quoted Micah chapter five, verse two and second Samuel two. All they did was say, Oh, well, the Bible says, God's word says he's going to be born in Bethlehem. So when, when King Herod was confronted with this crib, he invites the uh, religious leaders to his crib and we see the first characteristic of King Herod. He misused people. He misused people. King Herod was misusing the religious leaders. He was pumping them for information. You show me someone who has issues of power and control and I'll show you someone who misuses other people. Um, they'll look at other people like their scenery or their machinery or that their rungs on a ladder that they are just to be stepped on to get where they want to go. Herod couldn't care less about these religious leaders. In fact, he killed them most of the time if they ever disagreed with him. He was just wanting to know where this little kid was who was threatening his power. Next, we see that that King Herod not only invited these religious leaders to his crib, he also invited these new wise men to his crib. And you see that Herod misled people. Come to my crib, dudes. And he's saying, I need an astronomy lesson. You guys are the, are the smart ones. I like stars, but you know a lot about stars. So come over here and tell me about the stars. Tell me when this new king was born. And look at verse 7. Then Herod sent a private message to the wise men, asking them to come see him. At this meeting, he learned the exact time when they first saw the star. See what he's doing here? He finds the city. He finds the time. But he's going to see if he can misuse and, and mislead these wise men a little bit more. Look at verse 8. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search caref carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. The wise men said, according to our calculations, according to the time we first saw it, it took us all this time to get here, a year and a half to two years. That's how long we've been looking at this star. So the new king must be under two years of age. And, and Herod's like, wow, you guys are wise. Give me a high five. And then, then this is this is really kind of um, funny from our perspective because Herod's like, so go find them and come tell me because what I want to do, I want to be there. I want to take the crown off of my head, place it on the little baby's head, and I want to worship him too. Now, from what I've just told you about Herod, was that his plan? No, that's what he said. He was misleading people. And, you know, someone who has issues of power and control, they don't have any problem misleading others. They don't have any problem mistreating others. You show me someone who has those issues, and I'll show you someone who exaggerates and lies and spins things so that they look better in a situation, so that they can have power and control because they believe they were created to run their own life. So the wise men, they were truly seeking Jesus. By the way, does that sound like politicians? <clears throat> Sorry. Well, he was. He was, he was like, the, you know, the best politician of his time. So the wise men, they're truly seeking Jesus and he went, they went and found his crib and they worship him and they gave him gifts, the gifts that we've heard about, gold and frankincense and myrrh. The reason we think there are three kings that they weren't. But they didn't tell Herod. The Bible tells us that they were warned by God in a dream not to go back and tell Herod. So they leave a different route. Now, 
from what I've just told you about Herod, how do you think he reacted when he found out he was dissed by the wise guys? You think he was happy? Threw a party, yeah. <laughs> Let's have a party and bring the wise guys in. Yeah, that's, he probably thought of that, but they were already gone. Well, we come to the third thing. Herod mistreated people. He hired hitmen to kill every child in Bethlehem under the age of two. Killing wasn't a big deal to him. He wanted to wipe out any possibility of a threat. Two years old, he just found out from the religious leaders where it was, where the king was to be born. He just found out from the wise men when he was born. So he killed them all. And if you go back in the Old Testament, you can read, and it says, Oh, Bethlehem, why is there weeping and mourning? This was a prophecy from the Old Testament that there was going to be a time of intense sadness around the birth of Jesus Christ. And when you read these prophecies and you see that they were fulfilled in Jesus, man, it just makes the whole Christmas story come alive. Now, um, can you just imagine if you're, if you're having dinner with your family, you're in a small town, Slocum, it's just a small town, you're having dinner with your family and some soldiers come and they kick in your door and they kill your child in front of you. How's that make you feel? That's the kind of guy we're talking about here. He was deeply disturbed. And that's a play on words for really who he was. And I know that we don't have any mass murderers here. But I have a feeling that some of us go Herod from time to time. Like, whoa, I'm no Herod. Well, let me ask you some questions. Let's find out how much Herod there is in you. And, and the, the temptation, I hear this all the time. Oh, man. My best friend's sister's cousin should have heard this message. Can I get a copy of that? Or my uncle's next door neighbor should have heard this. Can, can, can I, is there some way I can get us? I want you to think about these questions as it applies to you. Three questions from Herod's life as it applies to you as you're confronted by the crib this year. Question number one. In what area do I tend to misuse others? In what area of your crib, your life, your experience, do you misuse other people? Do you see people as scenery or machinery or rungs on a ladder that you'll walk over, you'll do anything you can to get where you want to go? Okay, let's get specific. Men, do you ever use your woman as a sex object? Oh, wait, 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 let's back up. Spouses, do you ever use your... Other as a sex object, Janie does me, and, and I, I struggle with that. <laughs> I so I have to pay the kids a dollar. I think I owe Janie more than that now. Anytime I mention sex and her name in the same sermon, not only is she not supposed to be in here, but you're not supposed to make eye contact with her once you leave here. But um, we'll move on. Do you see your spouse as as just? An ATM machine? Somebody who's supposed to provide for your every desire? You're not the king or the queen of America. What's behind that is power and control. How about in workplace? Do you ever schmooze your boss just because you're trying to get ahead? Pat him on the back. You're the best. Now, some of you are like, I don't have a boss, so you're okay. But some of you are bosses in this room and... People might schmooze you from time to time. Not because they think you're great, you're the best, but because they want the big fat Christmas bonus. Or they want the corner office. Or they want something that you can give them. 
That's misusing other people. Parents, you ever use your kids? I mean, misuse your kids? I have someone in my family, not, not like here in, in this city, but where when, when the dad would get mad at the children, the mom would go in and say, I can't believe your father's such a mean, evil man. She was misusing her children. And I've seen it in, in divorce situations, separations, where um, if, if you make somebody mad, I'm going to keep my kid and you can't see my kid. That's misusing people. You're going Herod. And you don't want to be Herod. You show me someone who has issues of power and control and I'll show you someone who will misuse other people. Number two, in what area do I tend to mislead others? Little white lies don't hurt anyone, do they? You ever lie so that you don't have to go somewhere with somebody that you just don't want to be with? You ever lie so that you don't have to answer the phone? You ever lie so that you don't have to go to work? <laughs> I'm sick today. <coughs> That's misleading people. You lie to make yourself look better? I'm going home Christmas, and, and this is like the big temptation on the Washburn family because we tell stories. We love to tell stories, if you couldn't figure that out. And uh, usually what happens, though, in stories where somebody did you wrong, you have to stand up and, and you say, well, I told them. And you say, I said, nah, 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 and you do it with this tone. I told them, you better take that food back or I'm going to stick it someplace the sun doesn't shine. And, and if you ask somebody else who was there and you go, did they really say that? They're lying. But you wouldn't say that because then you'll get your face pounded in because that's the Washburn way. Um, nobody can ever send this to my family because I will get in trouble. But do you ever, do you ever exaggerate? One time I was with a group of ministers where this came from, but, um, we were talking about finances. And, and I said, well, you know, I don't, I don't have any debt. And they all looked at me and they went, really? I said, other than my house, I, I don't have any debt. And, and in my mind, this, this is what I was thinking. I was, you know, I had a loan from my parents, but I had just had to put some stuff down on paper and I didn't have to count that as debt. And so I said, well, I don't have any debt. And, and then I went home and, you know, I was reading my Bible the next day and just this horrible feeling came over me. And I, you lied to them to look better in their eyes. You wanted them to say, oh, dude, sweet, you don't have any debt. So I went to all three of the other ministers on staff and I said, dude, I need to ask you to forgive me. And they're like, what? What'd you do? You've offended me and I don't even know. I said, I lied to make myself look better. And they're like, that's it? That's what you're confessing? I'm saying, Okay, if you want me to sin greater, I'll try. But because I'd lied to make myself look better. You ever do that? That's misleading others. In what areas do you mistreat others? Question number three. We gossip and we slander. You know what slander is? Slander is actually telling the truth about you with the intent to hurt you. So that I make me look better. Why do we do that? Because we're little insecure children. That's, that's why we strike out at others with our words. Because we're infants. We get irritated when we watch our children do it. How sickening it is when adults do it. And we think that we're making, when we strike out at others and we're ranting and raving about this, we think we're making them look bad. But you know, in reality, 
we're revealing just how immature we are. I'll show you. You hurt me. I'll hurt you back. Well, isn't it time that we quit pretending that we're this person who has it all together? If God's Son takes up residence in this crib, He's in charge. We ought to be resembling Him more and more every year. If we go 50 years from the time we say we've become a Christ follower and we're no different, somebody ought to be beating on our door. EMS ought to be coming because the Christian spiritual life is not alive in us. And the meaning of Christmas has died in us and we need to be revived. Why not just admit to God today that I've misled people, I've mistreated people, I've misused people. He knows it, and, and really everybody that you've misled, mistreated, and misused, they know it too. The only one you're fooling is yourself. I want you just to bow your heads for just a moment. I'm just wondering if you would be willing, just there in the quietness of your seat, to say to God, I've misused people, I've misled people, and I've mistreated people, and I want to stop. And I know there's going to be stress at the holidays this year, and I don't want to be the one who cracks and acts like a jerk. It's my prayer every Christmas. Would you say, God, I don't want to be on the, the throne of my life. I want you to run the show. God, I give you my career. I give you my marriage. I give you my life. God, what I'm doing is not working, and I don't want to go Herod. I don't want to resemble that jerk. Let the baby in the crib into your life this Christmas. It's the crucial relationship initiated by the Savior just for you. That's what the crib means. Father, help us to see the crib in a new way this year. In Jesus' name, amen.